the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Welcome to another edition of the Spot Track Podcast. My name is Mike Chinetti. It is Wednesday, August 9th. We're getting it done a little quick today. It's a big NFL show. It's a big NFL week, right? Preseason games are starting to light up tomorrow night. A lot of the camp decisions are coming into fold. We've got initial depth charts released. I'll be talking about that next week after I get some numbers in, which will include things like average salaries for projected starting players at each position, right? How much has the running back position actually devalued over the past couple of years in terms of starting running backs and starting quarterbacks and all that good stuff. So that's my my homework for this upcoming weekend. But for today, Dan Solman joins me on the top and we talk about those running backs, but not from the the, uh, the angle you might be thinking or what you've been hearing from else, you know, all the other outlets. We're going to spin this from a fantasy perspective and the value of fantasy running backs versus what their upcoming or currently signed contracts tell us, right? So for instance, Joe Mixon, who went through roster bubble hell for eight months and eventually got himself to a, a pay cut and a restructure. And what does that mean for him? And what is the connotation around him and the aura around or the atmosphere around him doing from a, a fantasy draft perspective? Same for a couple other players across the league, right? Austin Eckler, he went through a similar situation. Where does he belong from a fantasy perspective on a one-year deal and maybe on a two-year dynasty uh, conversation? So we go through six or seven names that have fantasy value and have some sort of question mark and or question that's been answered contractually in the real books. And we kind of align those two conversations together. So Dan's on the top. Scott Allen joins me on the back end because Sportico has released their 2023 NFL franchise valuations. It's always good to see where things stand the percent change over the past couple of years, who's gone up, who's gone down, and why they are where they are. And by the way, why they're as big as they are, because it's a huge, huge number from top to bottom, from 1 to 32. And uh, we also take things into a comparative level, which is the NFL and its stability versus the NBA and it the wealth, right? The salaries are crazy. The salary cap's increasing. We're going to have $70 million players really in a couple of months here. But the differences between what's happening with NBA valuations and NBA franchises and NFL franchises and why those two leagues and the way they are operated may be impacting themselves either positively or negatively. So Scott and I go kind of all over the place with these franchise valuations uh, in what I think is a really good discussion for not just now, but where things may be headed over the next couple of years in both of those sports that are just piling up the revenue and piling up the TV money. That's next. Okay, Dan, last we spoke, it was a heavy quarterback conversation. We're going to stick with the NFL for this segment. And we're going to go back into your wheelhouse a little bit, which is the fantasy world. I know you're probably deep in, if not drafts already, you're definitely doing the research and uh, and starting to compile some names and, and, and things like that. You've been doing this for a long, long time. You've been doing this with us for a long, long time. I know you have some some factors when you go to look at a list of names and uh and consider who you're going to draft or even consider, you know, from a dynasty perspective, players that you have question marks with. And that's where Spotrex data kind of comes into play. And it seems like that's irrelevant, but A, we have a lot of dynasty companies that utilize Spotrex data or at least confer and consult our data for a lot of what they do. And the reason is, is that, you know, the stability of a player's contract or the question marks surrounding a player from a contractual standpoint, have a lot to do with maybe not the immediate fantasy impact of a player, but certainly a multi-year impact on a player, right? So if, you know, 
Joe Mixon may feel good right now. Is he going to feel good in 2024 from your, your ownership perspective? There's a lot of that. And it's a really nice time to kind of digest some of the names that are at least sitting out there, maybe swinging one way or another, you know, a definite take this year because the contract is needed or just got a contract. And what does that mean about the usage for, for this player going forward from a DFS or from a, a standard fantasy standpoint? So I know you got a lot of names in your head right now. I just want to kind of pull out a dozen or so of them from the uh, the, the big power fantasy positions and just kind of talk it out from a from a contractual standpoint. So uh, feel free to lay it on me. However you want to drive this train, I'm here for it. Yeah, so I think we could even separate this um, positionally just because um, sure. from a dynasty format, we're typically trying to look forward. Um, I think mm -hmm. it's sort of a fool's errand to try and look too far forward, specifically with the running back position. Um, year to year, it changes drastically. But um, I think looking forward can be valuable for quarterback and wide receiver specifically um, if you want to lump tight ends into that in, into that as well. So um, whereas running backs, I typically for a position that is so uh, what we consider underpaid among professional athletes, I think it's very valuable to look at who did get paid um, Me too. rather than who is going to get paid coming up because I think there's a lot of signal um, for a position where t organizations are continuously trying to um, save cap room um, at that position when even even a small or shorter term contract can can give you a lot of signal in terms of um, their plans for that player's usage. So that, that yeah, might be the way to let, let me put it from a different angle, maybe. So, right. So, so Zeke Elliott for all those years on that $90 million contract in Dallas, right? For the most part, he, he, it existed because there was just nobody else to pay. <laughs> you know, Jerry Jones could kind of make that decision um, to pay a running back. And then, of course, Dak's contract was slow played and slow played and slow played and then eventually hit. And now here we are with Dallas, you know, kind of living in that no running back slash franchise tag world. Is it, is it easier right now to consider running backs or is it harder to consider running backs from a fantasy perspective? Because it, it seems like everybody's kind of in the same boat, but you've got a couple of names here that maybe stand out from an isolation standpoint, but it just seems like, there, there's a big pile at this point in time. You know what I mean? I, I feel like a third round pick in fantasy kind of operates like a third round pick in the draft right now, where they could be, they could have a gigantic year coming from out of nowhere from really no, you know, no financial value. So uh, just, to, just explain that to me. Is it still a, a dominated McCaffrey, Eckler, Nick Chubb, Derek Henry conversation? And is the drop off really that big anymore? <clears throat> so, it's sort that's sort of a philosophical question. So I'll just lay out sure. sort of my philosophy in terms of fantasy drafting specifically within football. Um, I think our uh, 10 years ago, everyone wanted to lock in an anchor RB. Um, you would see 10 guys go in the first 12 picks sometimes, right. but we have sort of the league context has shifted a lot. And I think um, it's a little bit more difficult to depend on that, which um Sorry, sorry. The floor is much more unstable for running backs, mostly because of in, uh, usage concerns plus injury concerns. Um, whereas it's way easier, in my opinion, to identify elite wide receiver talent, um, guys who fit a certain profile, have a certain usage in their offense. Um, right. 
etc. So I typically lean on on capturing elite wide receiver talent early. Uh, sorry, just re- elite receiver talent in general, whether that's a high end tight end like Travis Kelsey um, or one of the other dozen, uh, you know, wide receiver ones we could probably loop into this conversation. Now, from a running back perspective, I think there's still immense value in locking in in elite um, high ceiling mm-hmm. running back like Christian McCaffrey, like Austin Eckler, but with any guy, like any perceived safe running back, there are holes. So it, historically, those are two of my favorite running backs in terms of um, production. It's no secret. They've been at the top for several years in a row, but if you want me to poke holes, I certainly can. Whereas if you say poke holes in Justin, Justin Jefferson or Jamar chase, it's, it's, it's way harder in my opinion to, to think through, um, Mm -hmm. you know, a result where they don't finish as like a top five, 10 wide receiver, uh, fantasy player overall, really, unless outside of injury, of course, but So to just get back to your original question, I think wide receiver is valued at the, at the top end among certain people who just want to lock it in. So, so from that, to walk through that whole process, if I am getting a, if I'm at the top of a draft and I have access to one of the, those guys, it doesn't mean I'm necessarily passing. It just means that if I get one of those guys, I'm probably going to ignore the position going forward. So <laughs> that's where a pretty big gap comes in. And we're going to talk about some of these guys um, where like in past years, they may have been a, a, a first, second round pick. They're now sliding into the third, fourth, fifth round because of context, or like we're going to kind of try and drill into a little bit here today their, their contract situation may be affecting um, their ADP range in terms of where they're going this year compared to other years. And with the guys that we've kind of put on this list of running backs, it's um, specifically guys that probably have more opportunity than, than the public is, is giving credit for. So um, it's not necessarily guys I'm in love with or want am hammering to draft, but I do think um, specifically with running backs, you're going to look at some point in your draft, you're going to look around and one of these um, guys is probably going too far to fall down the board. And that's, uh, we're basically here to kind of give you some points as to why you shouldn't let, um, you know, mm-hmm. the, the perception around their contract situation or whatever um, prevent you from drafting those guys. Okay. Let's, uh, let's start firing away, man. Yeah. So specifically, this is a, my first one is kind of a layup here because he's a top five pick. Um, but Austin Eckler mm-hmm. is I mean, there's been so much around his contract situation, him wanting more money, him requesting a trade. Um, and the team essentially told him to go stick it. You have no leverage, right? So I think the general, at least in early football drafts, um, which are not, you know, it's not mainstream, but early football drafts, people were hesitant to take him because they think new landing spot. That's not always the best practice to, to assume similar production in a new landing spot. So if Austin Eckler did get traded, how would they use him in that new offense? It's not guaranteed. It would be the same way they used him in San Diego. Um, and I think people were letting him fall down boards a little bit because of that, but that is essentially all out of the way here. Um, in terms of the contract, um, but, I guess I'm, this is where I'm maybe throw it back to you. As I thought through this, 
is to my to my prior point the, the team basically said he has no leverage in contract negotiations right? right does he have leverage though if if their intention is to just run him into the ground and then let him walk in next year and why why do i propose that it's mostly because they did very little to nothing behind him um and they brought in a new offensive coordinator who in theory you think the pass game um, is probably going to maybe take a step forward and Austin Eckler would in theory be involved in that. So I guess my question to you is like, I thought he's a pretty safe player at the top of the board. As I sort of went through this process, I said, well, maybe he does have some leverage. I I don't want to say he's going to pretend to be injured or something like that, but you do know there are ways for them to kind of massage, uh, getting their touches limited if, if you know what i'm saying so like do you think the chargers might run him into the ground in a contract <laughs> here or do you think the player has leverage because I, the point i'm trying to get to is if there's more inherent risk here than than we're giving credit for um is he a risky pick at the top of a draft when i'm sitting here saying he's finished as rb uh, he finishes the overall player top player last year who's non-quarterback position player last year and the RB2 the year the year prior so it's this the perception of safety especially in PPR leagues is that a little overrated based on this contract situation I guess I don't know how this plays out in future years so so what do you think on that last two seasons as you just referenced 3,195 yards from scrimmage and 38 touchdowns that's insane I mean, that's just absolutely insane. And he's played all but one regular season game in the, over those two years. Uh, I mean, he's just been an absolute monster, Dan. So um, what does it mean that they handed him an extra $1.75 million in incentives at age, is he 28? He's 20, he just turned 28 about two months ago. So he's essentially going to be 29 years old when this thing is all said and done. Are they going to run him into the ground? Of course. He's going to be 29 years old. I mean, this is it. I mean, this is it. Should we expect decline? Sure. But decline off of 3,200 yards and 38 touchdowns still might be 1,512, right? I mean, that's that's that might be what you get out of him this year. And when you start to go down the list of usage and potential production of a run, of a single running back, I just don't know that you're going to find more than two other guys like this. So he's a top five pick in every single draft. He has to be. And the fact that he didn't get paid what he thought he was worth. This is, you know, this is simply if you, if you are, you, you're going to get an extra one, seven, five, which means 9 million cash. That's what, that's what they said to him. Okay. So he'll max out at 9 million this year. They tried to trade him. Nobody wanted him. Nobody wanted to pay that money and then adjust the contract. There's no contract coming in 2024 that's going to be even near this that, that's just a fact this guy is going to walk into free agency and or don't don't be surprised if there's conversations about a 29 year old franchise tag here don't be surprised um but there's not going to be a multi-year guarantee for austin eckler that looks anything like he wants right it's going to be two for six two for seven at the most um with one and a half guaranteed so he he knows that he's essentially playing for the most possible two-year contract that a 30-year-old running back has ever gotten. He knows that's what's happening in front of him. With that said, 
he's got a chip on his shoulder for a million reasons, right? A, this could be the end of my career. B, that no other team wanted to pay me. At least this team gave me a little bit of a, of a boost. And his production is just unheard of. So um, he's a guarantee lock for me. I would even consider him number one overall over McCaffrey this year for a lot of reasons. Um, so th- that's actually the per- that's the yeah. point I wanted you to get to because yeah. if if you are not worried about no him trying to I, I bring up through the does he try and tinker with his playing time sort of thing because no. going into last year people were scared off of him because he said I want less wear and tear on my body um et cetera et cetera people thought they might back off it didn't happen and he turned into the the, the number one player non quarterback fantasy player last year so i am on your side that if you don't have concerns about that he is in play for the again for the number one overall fantasy player because he's he's done it because he actually has been (laughs) yes and not to mention people are in terms of projecting that offense they could be the they could run the most plays in the league and there is essentially nothing behind austin eckler to the point where i think where you say we can maybe we can theoretically expect regression we there's a world where we could expect a half step forward from what we've even seen so that's i wanted to walk through that point because it's i land on it's really how you feel about the player and the situation but if people are discounting um austin eckler and letting him fall in drafts because of all this talk around his contract situation and all and everything that comes with that I am going to double down and bet in on that again, especially but, since you since you just sort of reiterated my original thought process. So. No question, and and to me the only the only conversation that could interject in that way, Dan, would be if people think that Austin Eckler doesn't want to be there. Right. Okay. That and, and I, I get. I don't think that has ever been the conversation. It is simply if you don't want to do this for me, I need to find somebody who will. The Chargers essentially compromise with this incentive package, which, by the way, is almost all likely to be earned. Right, it's not like they they built in a package that he has to go and overachieve to get to. Some of it he has to do a little bit better than last year, but not most of it is just be the guy you were last year, and you're going to make almost nine million dollars, which is four million more than he made last year. So it, he's got a lot of reasons to be okay with where he is right now. But with that said, he's not trying to retire either. You know, he still wants to go out and get some form of a 29, 30 year old contract next year. So he's playing for something. He's playing for incentives this year and some sort of contract next year, even though that probably isn't with the Chargers, right? This is probably it. They're going to run him out every single possible chance they get, you know, and Keenan Allen's going to get hurt. You, you know where this is going, right? All the, all the things that have to happen to make a running back as powerful as he can be right now are going to happen on this team. There's not really a tight end option that, that we love there. So he's going to get a lot of those catches out of the backfield. I just think it's the perfect scenario. And the Chargers are the perfect regular season team, which is all that matters for fantasy purposes. It's all that matters. They don't have to win in the postseason for Austin Eckler to be worth the number one pick. So I agree. I don't have much more to add there. I think we walked <laughs> through it pretty good. I just wanted to, I, I mean, he, he's a bona fide top five pick in most fantasy drafts. Yeah. You might see him fall, but you, you just, if sort you're of taking ahead of him though, you're doing it wrong. In my opinion, to me, it's Eckler yeah. and McCaffrey. To, to me, it's that. Right. And, and that's, it's it's McCaffrey, Eckler, in whatever order you want, but you're right. If Bajan Robinson, Nick Chubb, yeah. Saquon Barkley are sneaking ahead of Austin Eckler, I think you um, let the narrative take over in that situation. So, right. I totally I totally agree with that. Who's next on your list, sir? 
So we'll just kind of work it down ADP wise. And also I think this is a, a similar player in a lot of ways, minus the whole trade scenario. Um, Joe Mixon has been a top 20 pick um, fantasy wise in the last few years, aside from the legal issues, which are well advertised at this point, I don't even want to tangentially touch on those. Yeah, and um, not really going from, away either, by the way. <laughs> right, right. So those aside, because it's impossible to really analyze anything with those involved here. Um, the main concern really was whether in the same light as Austin Eckler was whether he was even going to be on this roster or whether he'd be a cap casualty because of his con- contract situation. Now, the Bengals restructured him, saved a bunch of money. I mean, you you might be able mm-hmm. to lay those numbers out a little bit better, but almost nothing in his situation has changed. Um, same quarterback, same I, same wide receiving rep- weapons. Let Some me jump people, in. Oh, they yeah, got go rid of his backup. That's what's changed. Exactly. A, 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 a valuable backup yes. carved into his receiving work. Absolutely. It's a good yeah. point. So um, it's the exact opposite of what I think the connotation is right now with Mixon. But go ahead, man. Yeah, no. So he's at ADP 34, which puts him around RB 15. I mean, a top five RB finish is well within Joe Mixon's range, especially if you like, let's, let's play the assumption game here. Joe, we, it's being reported that Joe Burrow's injury is fine, but calf injuries can linger. He re-injures that week three, week four, who knows, but the potential is there. I mean, it's going to, be Trevor Simeon or yes. Yeah. Trevor and, Simeon. And by the way, off. let's stop calling this a calf injury. All right. There's an Achilles issue with, with Joe Burrow. Everybody's afraid to say the a word. It's an Achilles issue. They're going to slow play this. They're going to make sure he's healthy for week eight. He's going to miss at least three to five weeks in my opinion. So th- it's just more points to bolster Mixon's prowess right now. And I actually saw uh heard Stefania Bell t- speak on this a little bit that Week one shouldn't be the concern. It sounds like he should play that a mid-season re-injury, which would then lock like a, a game speed mm. type injury would then take him out for a longer period of time, potentially. And that so I'm just working through that is where, where I'm saying there's tons of avenues that Joe Mixon is a tremendous value at his tremendous. ADP. And I think a lot of that is stemming from the prior, the early draft season concerns of, is he even a bangle? And if he's not a bangle, where does he land? And if he even lands anywhere, like what does that offensive environment look like? So um, not a lot I want to say here other than what I, what I've already said. Yeah. What else do you need? Yeah. If he's going third round, Jesus. Yeah, behind him is a rookie, Chase Brown, and then Travion Williams and Chris Evans, who have had some lingering injury concerns in the past. So unless that's a spot, I I mean, the caveat here should be there's still time. These teams can make signings, but like unless they add a prominent player. There's a world where Zeke Elliott comes here. What does that do? Right. Right. It's not a drastically different um, profile that you you think it would carve. into Joe Mixon. So, okay. Yeah. I, I, I don't like the person. I think the player has a lot of fantasy. Value, so. <laughs> um, yeah. You mentioned the pay cut. Let's go through it quickly because it's um, fairly significant. He was set to make 10.1 million. I've been trying to cut this guy off the Bengals roster since last Christmas, because it's just where this was headed. They waited, they waited, they waited. They didn't draft his replacement. They didn't sign anybody in March. They didn't really, I think, try to trade him. 
Maybe they did. You know, we'll never know that answer for sure. But I have to imagine that was at least an option at some point in time this summer because it's been a lot of months. And then on July 18th, right, not even a month ago, is when this whole restructured contract, which is two for 11 and a half million, but just 7 million guaranteed and only 4 million of that guaranteed right now. This is essentially one, four, five with a maybe next year. And they got to know by essentially March 17th, what they're going to do with Joe Mixon next year. But um, he's going to have to live with the fact that he's a less than $6 million player now for this year and, and potentially for next year. And, and really what it is, is it's the Austin Eckler situation. The numbers almost align perfectly from a financial standpoint with Eckler's contract. And if Mixon has the year, I think you think he might. We may be right back into the, I need an incentive package for 2024 to, to stick around and make sure that this works because you still don't have a guy on this roster who's going to supplant me from this job. You're still a Super Bowl contender. Joe Burrow wants me here. So I can't make $6 million. I got to make closer to 8 or 9 so I, I actually think we're heading towards Austin Eckler version 2.0 next offseason if Mixon does what you think he's going to do. And the point being, if you're getting him at 35 overall and, and, and the production, you know, is not his usage is going to be close to 100 percent on this team. Right. Then uh, it's really, really good bang for bucks. So, again, there may be a suspension in there. I know I know you're alluding to that a little bit. Uh you know, you never know with the injury stuff. He, he definitely was injured in that in that AFC championship game. There's no question about that when his production went off the wall. But I was there the week before that in Buffalo when he literally ran over the entire Bills defense. So it's not like he still can't do this at a high level. He was the the singular entity of that offense in the postseason. So uh, he's got my highest regards on the field right now. For sure. All right. So we can move into some the next guys we're going to talk about are maybe the most polarizing running backs in fantasy football. In my opinion, people think they mm. have exactly figured out how these guys are, are going to, or not going to be used. Um, which is kind of the point of us bringing up um, why their potential values. I wouldn't jump the gun on these guys, but if they are slipping in your drafts or at ADP, <laughs> I think you should feel, um, confidence in grabbing uh at least one of them first guy we'll talk about is miles sanders he's at adp 47 which puts him uh basically as a top 20 running back right around rb 18 um depending on your format <clears throat> he, he entered the league as a three down back profile if you remember and it never really took off um and I want to blame a little bit of that based on personnel, how the, how the Philly offense is run. It's been very spread out. There's been very few um, target hogs, if you will, uh, over the last couple of years. So him being like a workhorse back never specifically panned out. Um, but now he goes to Carolina. Mm -hmm. He got a decent guarantee across the next two years, uh, roughly 13.2 as I read it mm -hmm. um, in a very unproven offense with a rookie quarterback. So do, am I sitting here saying I love the player? Not necessarily, but I think there is a very simple, uh, let's just put it this way. The opportunity is going to be there. If he fails with it, then he fails with it. And maybe he's not all that talented, but the guy's going to get touches, right? There's a rookie quarterback, really no receivers that make you your mouth water. And Miles Sanders is a proven entity in, in in this league. So, so th there's two sides of thinking I know with his specifically with his 2022 production. 
like, was he a product of just a league best offense with the Eagles or was his ceiling capped a little bit because of what I just said with them spreading that offense around, right? Like AJ Brown, we saw these monster two, three touchdown games, but there were also games he went to for 35 ish and kind of disappeared. And those were Miles Sanders games. So when you kind of look at the cumulative total on his numbers, um, it looks good, but I think there was a little bit room for more there, like a little bit got left on the table. So all I'm saying that is, is if he goes to Carolina and is a legit three down workhorse back prominent piece in that offense, is there room for him to be a top 10 running back this year, especially if they start involving him in the passing game more than he was in Philadelphia? <clears throat> the biggest free agent contract we had for a running back this year. And it wasn't even really close. Uh, he's the only player to get a, uh, a ten plus million dollar guarantee. Um, you know, outside of the franchise tagged players, that's I know that's unbelievable, but that's where we live right now. Um, in other words, they weren't just trying to piece this thing together in Carolina. This was their guy. Okay, this was the guy they wanted. They identified this right, and you know maybe there was a sniff at David Montgomery who got a similar similar contract, but uh, of of less value. But this was the guy um, for everything you just said. He has a chance to be a three down back. They have some guys behind him who might t- poach a little bit here and there, but unproven. And and I have Nothing a feeling. Nothing but complimentary backs, those guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Rookie quarterback, halfway decently experienced offensive line. Uh, there's just there's just not enough reasons not to take him for me. You ha- And if he's there in, in, in the taking, if his average – What's his ADP about 47? You said, Dan, is that yeah, what you said? Yeah, around, around 50 or running back, you know, an RB two RB RB 20 overall. Uh, the, the contract for me says confidence and usage. So I'm all in on that. I'm all in on Miles Sanders this year. Maybe not in the top three rounds, but if he's there in the fourth, that's a slam dunk for me. Who's next? Yeah. Yeah. So like on that point though, with, with any of these guys, what we're trying to say as we move in these middle rounds is if you, to my original fear, you know, perspective on how to build if you can lock up two three Mm. elite wide receivers or two receivers and travis kelsey or early you know a patrick mahomes early and miles you make miles sanders your you know your anchor rb in the fourth or fifth round um i think that's a really really nice start in terms Mm. of value so um next guy to talk about alexander madison maybe Mm. the most polarizing player in fantasy football um (laughs) <laughs> I can't, I can't, I, this isn't, I'm not going to die on a hill saying he's the most talented running back, but we did see him in limited, you know, in limited opportunities flash behind Dalvin cook when Dalvin cook was out or injured. Um, and it left us saying, we, we want to see more of that. And then now the guy has opportunity and we will see more. And now people are backing off like, well, he's not all that talented. Well, we knew that we know we, we essentially thought that, but we've, what we have seen was tantalizing enough for us to want to see him in a lead back role. Now he gets exactly that. And maybe in probably one of the better offenses in the league, um, there's literally nothing behind him, a fourth, fifth and seventh round pick. Um, again, just complimentary pieces and an underrated aspect of this from specifically a fantasy standpoint is how bad their defense is likely set up to be. This team should be in a number of shootouts and they play in a dome. They also play the lions in a dome, et cetera. So they have a number of dome games. I think 
Um, there's a lot of value for Alexander Madison, who ADP 65 puts him around RB 25. I would take the over on uh, like closing line value of RB 25 all day. I think he has a, a top 25 finish. Uh, or sorry, a top 20 finish, no problem. Um, if he hits the ceiling, I think there's top 10, top 12 running back-ish um, potential in that range. So, um, yeah, like you alluded to earlier, he got – oh, no, sorry, that was David Montgomery. But he didn't get a ton of guaranteed money, which I don't think um, is like mm-hmm. a dynasty. This is more of a redraft perspective than a dynasty perspective. I don't think he's um, some, like, top 20 running back for the next four years in Minnesota by any means. Um, I'm just saying this year when you're when you're in it – if you're – in your draft looking around saying I need a running back um, in the middle rounds, I think it's a really nice bet to make with uh, Alexander Madison. Two years, seven million, basically fully guaranteed. He's 25 years old right now, just turned 25 years old. All of the, and he has nobody behind him and he's never been a bell cow and he's going to be asked to be a bell cow right now. I, I don't know why you wouldn't bet on that. <laughs> is he, is he, let me put it, let me ask this question because you, you framed it nicely with Miles Sanders. You do your dirty work on wide receivers, grab yourself a tight end. Is he a number one option for you as a running back? Yeah, I mean, like I'm not – yeah, so flat out, the way I build is elite wide receiver talent. Mm -hmm. If if an elite quarterback falls to a spot where I feel like I I need to grab them, then I do do that. So I'm typically looking for value in the middle rounds, and these are all guys that I don't mind – just putting in my, they're going to get touches and I don't want to try and play like the matchups game. That's, that's what happens when you have too many running backs on your team. In my opinion, is you just yeah. play, try and play matchups and it's very hard to nail wide receiver or sorry, running back usage week to week. Um, even with teams that are rushing offenses, it's just a game plan specific thing. I think there's just more opportunities wide for wide receivers. Wide receivers are way safer. So yes, I'm typically building with, high-end wide receivers early in the draft and then looking at one of these guys where I can just say I'm going to bank on you know the touches and if they fall I mean who who thought Jamal Williams was going to fall into the the end zone so many times last year you find him in the middle rounds and then you just plug him into your your roster weekly and kind of forget about it and just hope he scores a touchdown every week and those 10 12 points is enough and if he falls in twice then 20 points is winning you a week probably right so that's where I'm focused. This who's year the who's the running back that went to Atlanta, and we all thought it was going to be his time to shine, Mike? Uh, what was that? Michael, t- Tur- Michael Turner. No, no, no. Later, like recently, like two years ago. I, I'm sorry, Mike Davis, not Turner. Okay. Mike, Davis. Mike Davis, right? Mike Davis came out of what Carolina? Carolina yep. to Atlanta. Back up in Carolina. He was he like he was like the fantasy d- darling, right? We all thought because of his usage, he was going to be the guy, and he was a total bust, right? I mean, that's got to be in people's minds here, right? The only difference here with Madison is he's been in the system for five freaking years. He knows everything that's going on around him. He knows how Kirk Cousins runs his offense. He knows exactly what his role is. I I just have way more faith in this working. This is what Green Bay has been trying to do with A.J. Dillon for four years, and the guy just can't get it done. That's why Aaron Jones still has a job right now. So uh, to me, there was the only reason to get rid of Delvin Cook is this guy was ready. That's it. Otherwise, Delvin Cook's still there on a Joe Mixon type restructure. In my opinion, he's gone. Delvin Cook's gone immediately as we as we thought he would be, and this guy gets the keys. So ADP is about sixty five. Are you taking him in the fifth, or is that too early for you? It's a 
depends on what I do in the fourth, probably. Like if yeah. I need a running back there though, and he's uh he's there, yeah, I think I would make him my RB one. Um without okay. a lot of um hesitation. The aforementioned, let's get to David Montgomery. I, I think we're gonna battle on this one. Let's do it. Yeah, so I'm a little bit torn on this one and I'm making the point in comparison to Jameer Gibbs, but this isn't because I dislike or don't think Jameer Gibbs is going to be productive. I think people are underrating the ability for them to coexist and be successful in this offense at the same time. Um, Jameer Gibbs has an ADP of 36 in PPR leagues, which is around the three, four turn. Um, Dave Montgomery is ADP 82, which is uh, about two to three rounds later, depending on where he goes. Um, I I think this is a little bit of um, like perception bias, if you will, like like self-fulfilling prophecy with David Montgomery, where he had a, he broke into the league as like a kind of like a light, three down back like people didn't really think he was going to be like uh, a, a super big workhorse but he did have a pretty dynamic profile he can pass catch he can pass block um i i just think people are were disappointed by him and typically he's been he's been on a very underwhelming chicago offense um i think it's more of an offense and environment situation to start his career than it is He's not talented. Um, And now he gets sort of like a a refresher in a new place um, that clearly valued him. He was, I I could be wrong, but I thought he was the first running back signed in free agency. I tried to kind of pin, you know, lay out Mm. the timeline. It looked like he was signed on the second day, but I, I could swear that he was one of the first guys announced, which surprised me specifically the landing spot when, when it happened. So, um, maybe I'm like meandering too much. He's 26 years old. He has a dynamic profile. It, it's a Jared Goff led offense with really only Equinemius State Brown and a bunch of unproven pass, you know, a, a bunch of unproven receivers there. Um, I just think the contract leads me t- to believe that Montgomery is going to have a prominent role. And, and Jameer Gibbs draft capital also makes me think he's going to have a prominent role, but I think people are overvaluing are are placing too much emphasis on the fact that they would cannibalize each other rather than support just a greater offensive context, right? Like Jamal Williams, the the touches he vacated, um, are all going to Jameer Gibbs. Let's go there. Let's go there because Everything about last year says that you're exactly right. There's data to prove it. The, the Lions weren't a one-trick pony last year by any regard, and it, they ran the hell out of the ball to the point of where all of their running backs either got them trade value and or found a free agent contract this offseason. They're all gone, right? They're, they're all gone because they were all utilized enough to be attractive on the open market or the trade block. The, the Lions basically bought and sold their entire running back arsenal in one year and restructured it with two potentially dominating running backs is what you're saying. So there's a world where three running backs who got usage last year now become two running backs this year, which should, should manifest itself to about a 55, 45 split. Somebody's going to have the hot hand and, and, and really get a usage a couple of weeks. That's just how it works. Right. But nobody's getting 60% between these two, in my opinion, if they're healthy, right? I mean, 
Montgomery might get more rushes. Gibbs might get more catches. You know how this is going to spread out a little bit, but uh, the, the per touch running back stuff last year, I remember this from DFS. If you, if you piled any of the running backs from Detroit on your DFS team, you were consistently going to get into the nines and tens and 11s point wise because of what they did on a per touch basis. So not only can they coexist, Dan, I think you're, you're going from three last year to two this year. And they know it. That's why they traded DeAndre Swift. They, they knew what they were getting themselves into. They knew there was an opportunity for them to really compartmentalize this thing a little bit and, and make these guys even more attractive. And oh, by the way, it's not like the, the wide receiving game, the pass game got a hell of a lot better, right? It's still Jared Goff, a couple Same. of suspended wide receivers. St. <laughs> Brown's going to have his boomer bust games. They're going to run the hell out of the ball. They're going to run the hell out of the ball. So I actually think it's more attractive than you're laying out here. With that said, what happens if Gibbs is an absolute star? What if he's a star? Okay, so th- this is this is why I think there's value here. So Gibbs can be a star, and I st- I still think David Montgomery has the floor of a a Jamal Williams esque season. Now the touchdown regression is bound to happen, but I think yeah. the floor I think the floor scenario for David Montgomery is that Jameer Gibbs smashes catches. 85 balls and David <laughs> Montgomery like Eckler, right? I mean, he's built with that kind of frame, right? And David Montgomery still gets 800 yards and eight, sure. nine touchdowns. I think that's really within his range. Now the P like the part that bugs me with this, Mike, is that people are leaving David Montgomery for dead in terms of the di- in terms of his profile. He can pass catch. He can block. If yeah. something did happen to Jameer Gibbs, he turns into a bona fide three down back, in my opinion. Maybe I'm over projecting that, but if Jameer Gibbs wasn't there right now, is David Montgomery a top 20 pick? Like, is he a second round pick? Oh, yeah. He's Miles Sanders. Right. So th- that's what I'm saying. If he's, if, if he's your RB2 and mm-hmm. has the ability to bring you like RB one plus value, if you will, if something happened to Gibbs in that offense, that's all I'm looking at and saying there's value there. And everybody, like everybody hates David Montgomery. I, I like he's catching some, where are you saying, are you saying it's 80, 80, ADP? I had 82. Holy cow. Yeah. Obviously they hate him then. That, that's, that's, but top, I don't that's even, something. I don't even mean from an, just an ADP perspective, Talk to anyone about David Montgomery and they think he sucks. And that's in conjunction with yeah. Jameer Gibbs being the sexiest pick that the draft capital, they, they, some people thought they overpaid. Like they, it was obviously a priority signing. So I do get the counterpoints to David Montgomery. I just think people are leaving him on the side of the road for, for no, there's also reason, so. look, the numbers also say he was, he's declined a bit in Chicago the past couple of years from a productivity standpoint, but that's jaded. Because Justin Fields has taken over many a lot of that rushing usage. Yeah, Jared, Goff, two years Jared Goff that ain't doing that, man. Jared Goff is not yeah. doing that. So he's gonna he's gonna resurrect himself back to a three down back at some point in time here, even if he's sharing. The, the way I see it is <clears throat> Gibbs, I, just like you said, Gibbs is gonna dominate out of the passing game. It's a, it's the perfect way to to kind of slow play a running back into this this league is just get him touches out of the backfield instead of having pound through the tackles. Montgomery has all the experience in the world doing that. He's gonna be the bell cow. In, in this offense, 55, 60% usage. So uh, if, if I'm getting him in the seventh, <clears throat> Dan, even if he's my first running back, I'm happy. 
even if he's my first running back. I hope he's not. I hope I hope I'm I'm complimenting him with somebody else already. But I uh, I'm with you, man. I, I I thought we were gonna go a different direction on this conversation. I, I I absolutely think they coexist. And like I said, I actually think there's more usage this year than last year in Detroit's offense. So I'm all for it. <clears throat> okay, couple of bonus conversations, and we'll get out of here. This is kind of a positive running back conversation, by the way. Right, we're we're bucking the trend right now. Everybody's trying to crap on this position. We're we're in, invigorating some enthusiasm back into it because of fantasy football. Who would have thought? Um, I want to have a conversation about Josh Jacobs quickly. I don't know if you're on board with this. This we've talked about it a little bit offline. Um, there's a lot of you know what ifs. Let, let me just start there. If you had to, to draft tonight in a PPR league tonight, where is Josh Jacobs going? I'll fully admit I don't have the best handle on this because I'm I'm pretty much you would never take him. <laughs> I'm crossing him off my board. I haven't. Yeah, he's not the like last year caught everyone by surprise. I mean, if you remember the Hall of Fame game, he played yeah. every snap, and people were like, "This dude's getting cut off the roster." They were trying to trade him. Yeah, they were trying to trade him. Winner a couple weeks later. So, I just I don't I'm not gonna like I've talked about pendulum perspective in the past. I'm not buying in on that, but that's only part of the thing. Like the issue, it's not, I have to say the contract stuff is probably the least concerning to me here. It's really really just the player profile plus the offensive environment. I just, I don't, I can think, see things going way off the rails in Las Vegas, whether it's Jimmy G not performing, whether that then compounds with Devontae Adams being unhappy and then that compounds with Josh Jacobs not being able to produce a lot of the reason he produced was because they were competent on offense last year and I'm not totally sure I buy into that this year but I'm willing for people to prove me wrong on that so um he's just a guy that where he goes in drafts I'm always looking somewhere else I have (laughs) I don't have enough confidence in him so um, that's just me though. I, if I'm wrong on it to again this year, then I'm, uh, then I'll, I'll lose, but <laughs> not doing it. There's no question. I mean, he had the, the year of his life. I mean, it rivaled his rookie year when he averaged almost five per attempt and blah, blah, blah. But you know, he, he, he single-handedly has added the passing game into his package. He, he didn't have it coming in. He never had it in Alabama. And, uh, you know, he's literally doubled his production out of the backfield. So, Obviously, that's enticing because if he's if he's going even fourteen hundred and fifty catches again, that's that's big boy stuff, right? I mean, that's top ten again in fantasy football. So you don't want to just leave that hanging, you know. And there's not a lot of guys doing that this year, are there? I mean, is I, can you answer that question? How how many running backs draftable in fantasy football are catching fifty passes this year? Just off the top of your head, is it ten? it's probably close and it's it's probably that close to that in my opinion because of like some like specific usage type things rather than like a three down back who if you want to narrow it down to like players that play sure 70 80 percent of snaps and have that many catches i think it's it's probably lower like cut in half but um I don't know. Do you have the number or should I? I don't have it. I'm, I'm literally just spitballing because I don't think it's that many still, even though the, the game has tried to evolve in that regard. Right. Um, there's a lot going on here. I, I mean, Zamir White was drafted last year. 
He's a fourth round pick. A lot of people think the kid can take over the job, right? He's, he's a Georgia running back. Generally, those guys pan out pretty well. There's a couple of veteran complimentary pieces behind him. I, I don't know. I mean, are you worried that he's going to sit out regular season games? I'm, I'm not. I, I don't think I am, Dan. Um, but I'm with you. I don't love the team either. So uh, if, that's the, if that's the question, then the answer, I guess, is just to stay away. But I think you're staying away from potentially another 1,450 catch season. I just don't know where we're headed from here. The only reason I wanted to bring him up is this. A, the holdout. B, I, I, I just think that the end result is going to be Saquon Barkley 2.0, which is they come to agreement on some sort of one-year contract, even if it's one for 11. But to me, this is where we're headed. The thing that Barkley didn't get that Jacobs absolutely has got to get is the no tag provision. He has got to get the ability to get himself into free agency next year without the, without the franchise tag hanging over him. And I, I think he's got enough leverage to do so after what he just did last year. After I, I, Did I read somewhere that he literally was the, was the benefactor of 50% of the offensive snaps last year for the Raiders? I think that's actually true. That, he, that 50% of the offensive snaps for the Las Vegas Raiders went to Josh Jacobs. That, that's an insane number. So, by the way, that, it's gonna, that's going to pile up your numbers productivity-wise. So that's probably not going to happen again. But let's say he gets the one-year restructure with a no-tag provision. I know he's got a lot of mileage in Alabama and then here in the league. I know, I know he's been used a lot. I just, I just said it out loud. But he just turned 25. Like he was one of those guys that came in a year younger than everybody else. This is year five for him and he's 25 years old. So he, he's actually got that on his side. You know what I mean? That's younger than Barkley. That's younger than Pollard. That's younger than most of the guys we've been talking about here who have already hit free agency to some degree. So I, I, I just, do, I do think that there's a world where like, let's say he does get traded. Do you think that's possible by the way? <laughs> I, I have, trouble all right i have trouble with it let's do this i'm not a pro let's make it a game dan let's make it a game i'll give you i'll give you four options for josh jacobs in the next two weeks or three weeks he ends his holdout and returns signs a franchise tag he works out a restructured one-year contract with the raiders ends his holdout and comes back he is traded signs his franchise tag and is traded or there's no hope and the Raiders rescind the franchise tag, making him a free agent right now. Hmm. I think all are at least plausible ideas. I guess the fifth one would be he never ends the holdout, skips the season. I I guess I think he ultimately signs the tag, but of all the guys mentioned, I do think he has the highest risk of actually missing time, if you will. But really, I'm not super committed to that. I'm just saying if um, if there's a guy that seems dug in, I think I think it might be him. But. Are you drafting Jacobs or Jonathan Taylor first? Gun to your head. Oh, Jonathan Taylor. Really? Yeah, but that's me. And again, again, I, like I'm willing to be this is just. Uh, 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 like a play, a individual micro player take that I'm just willing to, I'm just willing to fade this player. And that's how, like, rather than taking a portfolio approach to fantasy, sometimes I just straight up say, this is a guy I'm not even going to invest in. And if I'm wrong at the end of the year, then, then I'm wrong. But I, um, 
I don't know, man. I have I have trouble thinking that it's now to to counter my own point. There's very little there, and he could be set up for another monster season, sort of like you laid out. Um, mm-hmm. If the, all those touches go to him, he doesn't miss time, and then what is the con- you know if it's like a prove it year for him uh, to then go get paid, then then by mm-hmm. all means. But um, yeah, but I think there's a I think a lot of people believe last year was a peak for him. Yeah. Right. And, and that's generally not a good time to buy high on somebody. So I get it. I get why you're staying away. There's a lot of reasons to do so. Um, any other names you want to sneak into this conversation before we get out of here? I think it's been a good one. Um, no, honestly, I think we covered pretty much. Um... Let, me, let me throw one at you quick, um, because I do think this is going to become a trend more and more as these free agent contracts and these veteran contracts just dissipate in between our, you know, in front of our faces. A player like Bijan. You know, similar to Gibbs, right? They're they're drafted so high, maybe even higher than most teams would ever do it. I think what was Bijan eight, right, to the Falcons this year? They've got him third in the depth chart. I think that's fun. It, I think they're doing that to to make it a talking point. But what is realistic? Do do we have to get to a point now where everybody just knows that the second contract isn't coming? So we have to start this process even sooner than than we ever would. Like is like is he going to get fifty percent usage right now out of the gate without even trying because of where he was drafted? I know. I think so. Yeah. Obviously factor in Desmond Ritter and a lot of other things, but do you know what I'm saying? Like, is there an obligation almost as if you've just signed this player to a hundred million dollar contract? It sort of feels like that with a highly drafted running back, right? Like it's the, the the, the clock has started. We got to get this thing done right now. You know? Yeah. You don't have the benefit of, um, no, you know, we see that at the end of the first round where people try and sneak back in, uh, to get the guy that's cheaper, but the difference between the eighth pick and the 30th 30th overall pick yeah excuse me is pretty drastic in terms of financial compensation so yeah we saw that with um i i mean even to just take it back years earlier the barkley thing started this too where immediately he got drafted and what was he the top paid running pack in the league or second overall and guaranteed money something like that and people were saying like well is he worth it well not from like a smart building perspective you want to lock in a, a low salary in your running back spots but from a talent wise, he's like a, a, you know, perceived elite talent, but I I don't know, just the, the, the replacement level there. I I have trouble um, thinking that teams are suddenly going to start drafting guys earlier outside of these one-off scenarios. But to your point, if um, Mm -hmm. that's the way it goes, this will start the process a little bit earlier for sure. Here's what I think is interesting. And I promise we'll get out of here on this. You know, we had all these guys sign, you know, what were there, 15 pretty prominent running backs hit the open market this year. We mentioned Sanders and David Montgomery got halfway decent contracts. They're not good. They're they're less than good. But those were sort of the prominent free agent signings. And then you had a just an absolute boatload of really good running backs signed one for one five, one for one seven five, one for two, something around there. If I'm looking at the fantasy rankings, and I'm using fantasy pros, by the way, so um, I'm sure something you're looking at is completely different or slightly different. But if I just go down the list of drafted running back rankings for 2023, all these guys that we think are good or solid or in good spots on one year, $2 million contracts, they're pretty far down the list. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you have to look pretty far to get away from a well-paid running back right now. When is that going to change? You know what I mean? Like, does it, why does it have to change? You know, 
like Jonathan Taylor, if he doesn't get his contract next year, we think he's going to be, you know, reserved to a David Montgomery type deal, six million per year. Is that what is that where this is headed for Jonathan Taylor? Or do, or do you think that teams will eventually give in a little bit with these top ten players? Because I, I'm looking at it now and it looks pretty stable, but I know where this is headed, right? The second McCaffrey is released out of his contract, what is the rest of this position going to look like for real? Well. I don't know the answer to that. And I would lean on your, uh, you know, professional opinion more than what I'm going to say here, but is, do we get to a point where this is pitchers in baseball where Mm. it's shorter term, higher, you know, higher dollars um, where like a lot of the hesitancy from the organizational standpoint is to lock these highly volatile players, running backs into multi-year term at high dollars. So if you're just saying, let's go year by year and here's 10 million instead of 7 million over two years, in theory, the player should say, okay, I'll do that. And then hopefully I'm healthy. And next year I go get another $8 million contract or something like that. But I don't really know cap wise. Does that do those puzzle pieces fit? Like our team's going to want a one year cap hit of 10 million because they're usually massaging the extra term in there to get that cap hit a little bit lower, but I'll, I'll let you elaborate on that. No, it, it's a strong point, right? Are you, would you rather be under contract for two or guaranteed for one at this position? That's going to be a really fascinating way to way to go about it. And, and they're going to think differently than most positions are, but just to go back to my point quick, because I, I want to kind of reiterate what I'm talking about here, maybe say it better. Just just run down the running back rankings real quick, Dan, right? Every player at the top of our list or even down into the 20s is either under a nice veteran contract still or a, rook, or a flat-out rookie contract or tag, right? One of, one of those three things. I have to get all the way down to, at, based on this list, number 35, which is Rashad Penny, who's on one year, 1.3 million with Philly, and might have a huge year, right? He might have a great year based on, you know, this, some of these conversations we've had here, but that's where the one year, basically minimum contract player lives right now, 35. So are you telling me that teams can operate that way? You know what I mean? Like I'm just kind of trying to, trying to be optimistic about this because if, if that's where the one year, $1 million player lives from a productivity projection standpoint, then what are the 49ers going to do when they can't afford McCaffrey anymore? You know what I mean? Are they going to just going to try to find four guys like that and piece it together? I'm not sure that's the best approach for anybody right now. Um, you still have to have one bell cow who can do this, which is why I believe what Detroit's doing is correct. So I, I do think there's a world where the two for tens and the two for twelves and Miles Sanders three for 25s, which is really two for 13. I, I'm hoping, I'm hopeful that those contracts still exist, even if the four for forty eights are probably gone. And, and I, I think I'm just resigning my fact to the, you know, to, to the notion that that's a reality. But you know, James, or excuse me, you know, Damian Harris and Rashad Penny and Devin Singletary and all these players who we thought, holy cow, they only got a million dollars. Well, they're in positions where they're only going to play a million dollars worth of worth of production, right? They're only going. They're only going to give what they're getting right now. Is is the point? So, um, the Jonathan Taylors and the Josh Jacobs and those guys should do okay still at some point in time, even if the position is gone at this point. Is I it tend, thinking? I, no, no, no. I <laughs> I tend to I tend to agree. I think I tend to agree with that. I'm 
like, is the four for 45 disappearing really matter though? If that four for 45 was always two for 13, you know, right. So that that's where I'm trying to say is maybe RB contracts, we get rid of the fluff and it's really just a one year deal or a stripped down two year deal. Um, and you're, it's like a bet on your, like, here's some guaranteed money. Here's your cap number prove yourself we'll we'll revisit this next year or you'll revisit it with some other team next year but i maybe that's flawed thought process but that's kind of where i i initially fall on it so it's fair and, and look for every opt- optimistic conversation we're trying to have here there's an isaiah pacheco right ranked 30th who came out of the seventh round and there's going to be right. a udfa that steps up and takes a starting role this year and those guys are existing and and they're they're a pleasantly part of the problem, right? I mean, they're, they're injecting more problems than they aren't right now, unfortunately, but um, I, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to spin this as, as optimistic as possible. I know it's not good. Um, you know, Jacob's situation and Jonathan Taylor's situations are really important for this position, which is why I don't want to leave them out of any of these conversations, but I, I just don't know. We'll have to wait and see what happens because, you know, if you're not a first rounder and neither of these guys can be considered that because, Jacob's fifth year option was declined last year. So um, it's a, it's a, it's a troublesome situation. We'll see where it heads that, up. But that, that's the point to make is yeah. that separation between high, like early drafted guys and Isaiah Pacheco, seventh round rookie who might yeah. make $2 million over the course, like over the course of his contract <laughs> getting run into the ground on what should be the best offense in the league over the next couple of years. Like that's, what we're talking about is those guys have almost no earning power in this, in this league. He's a 24 year old undrafted free agent. By the time he's even free agent eligible, he'll be 27, which is past the prime. Most people want gone. to invest in a running he'll, back. Yeah. He'll, be so. he'll, he'll end up making about, if I have to guess about 5 million, um, when he gives, gets a little bit of a performance boost in 2025, okay. but, but Dan, that's assuming that they're not going to replace him. They may sign Delvin cook tomorrow. Right, and he'll be reduced back to a third, number three option on a minimum salary, which is really what he is and what he was drafted to be. So uh, that's the problem. It's a surplus issue, and um, and the money is being suppressed because of it. So, final point: I've made it a million times on this on this show. I'm going to make it again with you. You have to take the contracts you're being offered. <laughs> okay, you can't you cannot try to be Elvin Kamara and Derrick Henry and Christian McCaffrey because those contracts are gone. They're never coming back. Joe Mixon. It's the same player he was 18 months ago for all intents and purposes. And he just took a $10 million haircut. So if he's doing it right. And Austin Eckler's resigned to incentives and Saquon Barkley's resigned to incentives. Everybody else has to just take what they're being offered. Right. If Jonathan Taylor was offered four for 40, you got to take it, man. Cause the right, running back on position the I, needs it. Yeah. The running I back position I, freaking needs it. Yeah. You outlined that last time we talked about this is that get it, uh, get the number on the books yeah. for that position period yeah. instead of Zoom, jerking around Zoom calls don't work signed contracts yeah. do. So just get them on the books. All right, man. We'll Agreed. talk soon. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks Mike. Okay, Scott, it's that time of year. The Sportico NFL valuations have been released. They're big. They're huge. They're confident. There's a, a lot to them. There's a lot, I think, um, built into them. The uh, guys and gals at Sportico have done a lot of work on analyzing this. So I just kind of want to piece together some of those numbers, some of those facts. But let's start with the numbers. Obviously, Dallas is going to be the top of this list. That's been the case for a, a very long time. And there's a lot to talk about with them. But how high is that number at the top of the NFL valuations list? 
Yeah, $9.2 billion. They're the first team to be over nine. Over eight, right? I mean, this is a huge yeah. jump. This is a huge jump. This is from 7.6 last year to 9.2 billion. Um, I think there's a lot to talk about here, but that alone, because they're now what? Over two clear of every other franchise in the NFL. They have four playoff wins since 1997, Scott. Four. <laughs> so this ain't this ain't a football conversation. No, this is it's a not. business conversation. Um and by the way, let's let's talk about it. Let's expand on this before we get to the rest of the numbers because there's some fascinating ones there. There's a couple of reds, right? There's a couple of teams that went down a little bit here, but um, every single team in this league is making money, and it's really not even close. You have to be an absolute moron, <laughs> right, to lose money in this league right now, and that's been the case now for about half a decade minimum. So. The fact that a couple of franchises have sold, you know, there's been some moronic situations. There's been a couple of deaths, and, and that, that's been there's been some turnover there in Buffalo and Denver. And obviously, the Washington situation is the one freshest in our minds. I'm going to compare that Washington sale to the number that Dallas has here. The Commanders, where do, where do they rank right now in terms of valuations? They're seventh at six point oh five billion. Okay. Slightly down or slightly up? What, what, what happened over the past couple of months here? Uh, they're, they're up compared to last year by 26%. Okay. And their sale price was? Do you remember it locally there? 6.05 billion. Right. So they're being valued for what they sold for. I, I can tell you right now, after doing some research here this morning, that price is about 10 times more than they make. So that's the going rate right now for, I, I mean, that's a big franchise. That's not a small market franchise. That's, a, that's on the bigger side of NFL franchises, 10 times what the actual revenue stream is. So if the revenue stream is going to continue to increase and it's only going to get bigger and bigger over the next couple of years here with the TV and streaming money and certainly what we know about YouTube TV and all that, um, we're talking about <laughs> a world where the Dallas Cowboys could sell for 10, you know, a minimum of $10 million right now, based on what they've done. They are a, they're a billion dollar per year revenue stream right now, Scott. And it has nothing to do with the brand of football they're putting out there. Nothing. It has everything to do with Jerry Jones as a businessman, as a tycoon, um, that stadium and what it's being used for, the concerts that they're able to put in there, the multi-purpose, multi-usage. The, the the marketing brand, everything that we kind of hate the Cowboys for and we're sick of hearing about on, you know, every news channel, every media outlet all year long, regardless of the football team, this is why they do it. Right? It's exhausting and it is successful. I, I was not expecting a nine. Were you expecting a nine with Dallas? Mm, it didn't shock me. I mean, a 20% increase from 2022. That's big time. It's not even close to the biggest jump though, you know? So, so to say that they're doing what they're doing is, is great. And, and the fact that they continue to pile it on is great. Give me some of the bigger numbers. I mean, th there are some gigantic percent increases over just 2022 alone, you know, not even talking about a three or five year scope. Yeah, we're talking about, you know, 41% for the mm. Las Vegas Raiders, 43% for the uh, 
Detroit Lions, 38% for the Buffalo Bills. Uh, the Bengals went up almost 41%. So we had some very large increases. I, I'm wondering mm-hmm. now that we're two years out of the pandemic, now we're starting to see there was a massive, as you said, there's a massive jump going from 22 to 23. And it's sort of, you know, I don't want to use the word reset, but we're, we're now that we're out of that, that wall of, uh, you know, smoothing of whatever salaries and people going to the games and everything like that. Yeah. And we know the live sports because of the pandemic is as important as it is. I think now we're starting to see uh, the fruition of that happening here in 23s. I think so. Um, I definitely think the addition of the streaming stuff has just tacked on to everybody. Um, and in the case of, you know, Buffalo and to some degree Detroit, I don't know. I'm, I mean, Vegas to me is just a, uh, a local conversation, right? I, I mean, they, obviously it's a new stadium. There's a lot of revenue. They kind of got pegged, you know, they got pinned down during COVID because of that new stadium release and they, they could basically make absolutely nothing from it. They're starting to see that come in now. So to me, that's a catch up game for them a little bit, but Buffalo and Detroit getting primetime games because of streaming, because of, a, you know, an increase in success on the field for them. That one makes sense to me. Uh, the Tennessee Titans jumping 33% does not make sense to me, except for the fact that I know that the Nashville region is just booming right now. So th- having a football team amidst that region is probably just really, really good business. There's a lot going on in other sports as well there. Um, the Bengals, who are still the lowest valued team in all of football, the lowest value team in football jumped 40% this year, Scott. That's pretty much all you need to say. That's the headline. That's yeah. the headline. Let me add on that. So I, I looked at the average of the top 15s versus the average of the bottom 15s of every year. And the top 15s has stayed pretty consistent. Uh, mm-hmm. 21, it was a 14% change. 22 was a 19% change. And 23 was a 19% change for the top 15. But when you go look at the bottom 15, it went from 13% to 17% to 31% for this year from a percent change from 22 to 23. So the bottom half of the valuations jumped dramatically compared to the top. Okay, let's try to answer that question. Let's try to figure it out. Um, no research, no no data to, to go with it. Why, why is this happening? Why is this all of a sudden now a 32-team boost and not just a 15 or 20-team boost, which is logical. I mean, you know what I mean? There, every league in, in American sports has bottom feeders for, for better, you know, it's a terrible word to, to use, but it's kind of how it works, right? The revenue gainers, not the revenue sharers. So... Um, how are we here? How, how are we at a point where, uh, you know, for lack of, uh, of precision, the top 10 or 12 teams in this league from a valuation standpoint have increased their values $3 billion since 2020, and the bottom have now increased their values $2 billion. The, the lowest value teams in football have gained $2 billion in, in valuation since 2020. Is it a... There's just so much to go around conversation. Is it what I'm talking about? Some of those bottom teams are winning football games and the culture and the business that comes with that have just risen. Cause that, that is a big part of this, right? If we go to the, if we go to the top, top teams value wise, 
Dallas is having, you know, Dallas is a middling team on the field. The Giants are literally neck and neck with Dallas. The Rams had their moment, but they're way back down to earth now. The Patriots are all the way back down to earth. The 49ers are consistently great, and they're in an unbelievable market. The Jets are trying to get above average. Washington is nosedived, right? But they're still consistently about average on the field. The Bears are trying to climb like the Jets. And then you get to the Eagles, who are Super Bowl bound, um, you know, who, who fall under that $6 billion mark. But for better or for worse, Scott, the top 10 valued teams are not very good on the field right now. Uh, and I, I think if you flip that on its head, the bottom 10 valued teams are kind of having a moment. So I, I think that has something to do with it. I realize that a lot more than football goes into this, right? It's, you know, it's hot dogs and beers and stadium and marketing and gambling and, and, and the list goes on and on these days. But I have to imagine that's a big part of this, right? Is that, you know, when Buffalo's bad and Cincinnati's bad and they were for a while, you know, they're, they're not going to get 35% increases. They're just not because the, you know, you can sell out the stadium, but you're just not going to have the charisma and the community and the, and the business prowess, the marketability to do much damage in this regard. So it's kind of a really nice spot for the entire league to be in, isn't it? Oh, it absolutely is. And <laughs> I, without looking at the schedule, I, I'm curious to know how much the schedule goes into effect as far as primetime games. You know, the Buffalo Bills, they've been winning, so they've had more primetime games. Jacksonville's on the up. Bengals are on the up. Detroit, you know, the, everyone's got them pegged for this season. Obviously, this is going off of last season, but the the hype behind some of these teams and getting prime time, I wonder how much that goes into effect too. In addition to, you know, some of the teams that I'm looking at here, they, they've they've made moves or they've done, they've been in the spotlight, like the Baltimore Ravens, yeah. you know, they jumped 23%, but the conversation has been Greg Roman, and Lamar Jackson. Mm -hmm. And so they've been in the, the, the conversation. So I wonder how much that goes into it as well. Uh, so the primetime stuff for me is real and it goes along with the winning conversation I just kind of threw out there. But, um, you know, it's a little bit like college football, right? And maybe this this is going away as well. But, you know, when Michigan plays Appalachian State or Michigan plays what Eastern Michigan or some some ridiculously small team in comparison to what they play on, you know, the, their football program is. The reason that the that the lower team doesn't isn't just to have Michigan football come to their stadium, right? Or Michigan football be on their TV screens for their fans. There's a ton of money, right? It's a it's a million to million to two million dollar payday for that small team to take one for the team, essentially, to know that they're gonna go up against the Goliath, take one for the team, and be the soft, soft proportion of a power conference schedule. So that's sort of what this is, you know, and, and when the Buffaloes and the Cincinnati's end up winning games and getting primetime games, the, the Giants and Cowboys don't have to do anything to gain value. Nothing. They just don't. You know what I mean? Like they can and L.A. to some degree, too, because of the stadium and the community around them. They just don't have to do much to, to, to be a, a good valued NFL franchise or sports franchise in this country. But Buffalo has to work their butts off. You know, Cincinnati has to work their butts off. The Cleveland Browns probably have to work their butts off. Detroit, of course, those blue collar communities that just don't have fancy suites filled up every week to, to kind of, you know, soften the blow for any kind of losses and, and things like that on the field. 
That's where Dallas makes up their money. Okay. Here's the number I have from Sportico. Last year alone, like I said, look at Dallas Cowboys earned over a billion dollars in revenue. And, you know, again, we're a wild card team at best. They made over a hundred million dollars just on suites, just on the luxury suites for their home games. And that's not including, you know, they didn't make a big postseason run. Let's put it that way. Just sponsorships in the stadium made them over $200 million last year. For one of the smaller markets, that's like an eight-year contract, right? That's like an eight-year contract of, of $250 million to $300 million. That's just the difference. That's what Dallas can generate because of Jerry Jones, because of the star, and because of that stadium. So it leads me to this, because the, the other part of the Sportico conversation, and it's a good one, it's a really nice one, is you've got recent sales, but not a lot. Right, Buffalo sold recently, Denver sold recently, and now Washington is the big sale. But it's not like you're having NFL teams getting flipped over and over. You're also not having a ton of stadiums being built right now. Okay, we had the, the Rams do their thing, and quite frankly, it was kind of a disaster. They went over like five billion over revenue, right? And they're still trying to kind of backtrack and make that back a little bit. The Chargers are still trying, Buffalo's in process. Tennessee's about to start, you know, break ground on there. So there's some coming. Jacksonville but, too. Right, Jacksonville. So they're they're on the precipice, but in the markets where you can't generate the slam dunk sponsorship slash luxury street revenue, right? Like a Buffalo, for instance, to some degree, like a Jacksonville. Do you think there's a conversation, Scott, about bang for buck at any point in time? Because obviously, you know, the owners of these franchises and there's some public funding and blah, blah, blah. But are we going to see some of those things flatline a little bit from a valuation standpoint? Because dropping a $5 billion stadium is actually going to be a deficit to those teams, not so much a benefit where the big boys can just kind of keep going and, and, and live at their will. We've had this conversation about, you know, in sports fans, you know, you know, the, the, the home product, the gambling aspect, you know, are, are, I think the conversation has turned to, we're just going to build smaller stadiums, which most of these are, they're smaller stadiums. Um, and there's a bigger push to PSLs and to luxury suites and things like that. But what is the conversation about Cincinnati's next stadium, for instance, the lowest value team in football, let's say it's, let's say they're going to have to do something in the next five years because the NFL bullies them around a little bit. Is there a bang for buck conversation to be had there? I guess probably. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, I guess it's no surprise that as you're talking and I'm looking at the teams at the bottom here, the yeah. teams that we listed, the bills, the Jaguars and the Bengals are all up for stadiums and they're at the bottom. So can getting new stadiums rise even more? Probably. Um, especially depending on, like you said, the PSLs and, um, and, and whatever else is going to go into, you know, I, I just find it fascinating that, uh, I just wonder that the the model's broken. That's all. I'm, I'm wondering if the league is getting themselves into a situation where this might really flatline soon. You know what I mean? The whole process of, of fans spending thousands and thousands, which they truly are now. I mean, literally, I just talked to, to uh, you know, Buffalo Bills season ticket owners. Their tickets, 
with the PSLs and where things are going in 2026, they're $50,000 buy-ins per seat. <laughs> I mean, that's where we're headed. And, and I'm not saying that the NFL can't afford that because we're talking about $9 billion teams and $8 billion teams, but not Buffalo, right? And not Cincinnati and not Jacksonville and not Tennessee and not Cleveland. Um, it's a really big stretch to say that one model that has worked successfully for LA and for Dallas and for New York can trickle down to all 32 franchises. I'm worried. I agree. My point is it's really healthy right now, right? We're talking about 32 valuations that have jumped a tenfold, right? Over the past four years, three years here, but dropping stadiums in the quarterback salary conversation, the, you know, a lot of other things, what happens when Detroit doesn't, isn't good and isn't getting a primetime game. Are they going to drop down? Do you have to time this properly? Because I can say this out loud and I'll let you respond to this um, as much as you can. I can tell you locally here in Buffalo, Scott, that the stadium conversation was like um, the elephant in the room negatively. It was kind of like a, a bugaboo conversation. Nobody really wanted to go there. A, they didn't want to deal with this $50,000 buy-in that I just mentioned, and it's real. That They kind of liked the blue-collar process of sitting on a pile of rocks and watching a football game because that's kind of the community still, even though there's you know, improvements and refinements always need to be made. But also they were a really bad team for like 20 years, right? Maybe longer, really bad team. There was no quarterback that could worth a damn. There was really no offense that could move. It was just a mundane product. Fans were still going, but you, it was a lot to ask fans to go from $100 to $500 on average, just to watch that football team in person. The fact that Josh Allen shows up and all of a sudden ownership is just immediately on board with this and fast tracks this whole process. And what are we talking about in Jacksonville, right? Trevor Lawrence shows up. They're fast tracking that process. Tennessee is really more about the Nashville community and baseball and all these other things coming in more of a Vegas scene. But I have to think that you're linking one with the other right now or you're not doing it at all. And I hope the NFL is on board with that because the numbers that are getting thrown out from Dallas and New York and LA and things like that, they just don't function everywhere. And I'm going to bring in this conversation to you with, with I think something you're better served to, to respond to. The NBA definitely has this, right? They definitely have Davids and Goliaths built into their league. And I don't think there's, I don't think the bottom teams in the NBA, and we'll see what the new valuations look like in a couple of months, but I I don't think the NBA is going to be even close to what this NFL landscape looks like. Do you agree with that? Do you think that, that, that the gap might be as big, but the health at the bottom of the NBA isn't going to be as good as it is, is in the NFL? I'm, I'm not sure we have a league like this right now that's this yeah. healthy. It, that, that's an extremely valid point. Okay. Um, I, as, as I'm looking at these valuations, the one thing that we haven't talked about is the essence of the betting and gambling. The gambling, and sure. I'm sure that has had a tremendous effect on on all of these evaluations. Uh, so I'm I'm curious to see how the NBA, if they're going to have such a large jump across the board, more so at the bottom. You know, the the San Antonios, the Houston's, right. the, the the Pelicans, the Charlotte especially with the sale with Michael Jordan there. So not to go down the NBA road, because that'll be in a couple couple months here. But No, no, I, I want to keep going here because I have another point to make. So go ahead. I, I mean, do you think that because 
they're, they're similar in, in where we're headed. I mean, the NBA has just a gigantic TV package coming, right? In 18 to 24 months here. So I have to think that, you know, when Sportico does the, goes to do their work and Forbes does their work, they're going to take all of that in mind saying, look, even if there's a bit of a blip here in Minnesota's sale, there's so much money coming in that's going to trickle down to every franchise. And by the way, I pretty confidently two expansion teams coming, Correct. Yeah. right? Which is just going to be more money for everybody. But, but still at the end of the day, here's the question I'm going to float to you. We've had two um, voluntary sales in the NFL and two deaths leading to sales in the NFL really over the past decade. That's it. It's been stagnant. It's been consistent. These guys and gals just continue to make their money and the valuations just kind of roll over into into their worth. I think the NBA's had 11 (laughs) in the past decade with Charlotte being the most recent and you've had, uh, you know, Minnesota kind of snuck in there on us in the past couple of years. That's a lot. That's more than a third of the league. Is it just that there's younger owners? There's it's less about family history and tradition, or is there something else to be said here, which is because generally, I mean, think about it like a stock market, right? <laughs> if you've got 30, 33% of your shares being sold by your shareholders, essentially over a 10 year span, is it just that guys are trying to make their money quick? Is, are they, are they slow playing this process, you know, and kind of a, uh, you know, quick selling or are they concerned about where this thing might be in five years? Are they concerned about a tipping point? Because if I'm an NFL owner, I'm riding this thing out for another decade minimum, you know, with, with these kind of numbers. Because even if the 30% increase becomes 15 over the past 10, next 10 years, I'm, I'm still worth like $6 billion if I'm the Cincinnati Bengals, right? So I, I'm not going anywhere if I'm an NFL owner. So why are there 11 teams sold in the NBA the past 10 years? Uh, you know, is it just a coincidence? Is it just a money grab? Or do you think that there's concern that the NBA is just a little bit more fragile than the NFL right now? Yeah, it, that's a fascinating conversation. Maybe it's a little bit more fragile than the NFL. The The NBA has a different conversation of yeah. uh, they have the max salaries. And we've been talking about Keith and I have been talking about it on the, the our podcast and the with the max salaries going up, we're talking about 70, 80, potentially $90 million, you know, per, per year. So the tipping point is definitely there as far as what happens when an owner is having to shell out $70 million for a player for a year over multiple years, are our owners going to be okay with that? Whereas in the NFL, there's, there is a next man up, but it's sort of, curved because you can restructure you can kick the can down the road can't really do that in the nba so it's a a, from a stability standpoint i would say the the nfl is much more stable from that standpoint whereas you get into the nba and you you, you're going to have to check yourself if you're going to want to pay those extremely high salaries for those high caliber players if you're if you have the opportunities and Josh Harris is kind of that guy now, right? He kind of lives in all these all these leagues at some point um, based on where he's kind of dipped his toes into. Would you rather be an owner with a, a hard salary cap or a luxury tax? Probably the luxury tax because I'd have more flexibility to spend 
uh, on whatever I want to do. And if I want to go over one year, two years, I can do so. Whereas the hard cap, like in the NHL, you are extremely handcuffed with what you can do. So I, I would prefer the luxury tax if I was an owner. I, I'm going to politely disagree. Okay. I think especially with this latest CBA iteration. Because now, keep in mind, this. I'm going to cut you off. Keep in mind, the NFL is more of a soft cap, not a hard cap because of the rollover. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the NBA is actually a soft cap, right? The NFL actually does have a hard salary cap number. It, there's just so many ways to finagle it, right? So, so to your point, um, it's it's loose. Let's put it that way. Um, I I think that the luxury tax stuff in the NBA is a real pain in the ass for owners. And you and I have talked quite a bit for a long time, a bunch of years. It's, it remains a pay to play league. It remains. I mean, I mean, you can't go out there with one of the bottom five payrolls and expect to be anything more than a play in team at the very best. Right. I mean, we, even with expanded postseason and, and all the things that they've tried to do to create parity, and they have, and they've done a nice job. At the end of the day, you need a superstar, maybe two, maybe three, and you need, uh, you know, 16 to $20 million paid veterans on your bench to, to facilitate the marathon of 82 games and a really long two and a half month postseason. So if that's how you win and winning is what ultimately gets you the most money, right? You essentially have to bet every dollar you have every year. And in doing so now, with the, with, especially now with these new tax tiers, you end up having to pay a hell of a lot of money back at the end of the year, right? I mean, look what Golden State has been doing. Look what Portland has been doing. Most teams, what is it, 10, 12 teams now, tax-paying teams in the league on an average basis, maybe even 15? You're, you're handing back money just for effort, just for trying, just for trying to stay relevant and become a winning franchise. I think as an owner, that's a huge pain in the ass and really, and really stinks. And if you kind of alluded to it with the NFL, there are so many ways not to pay players in the NFL. So many. It's got an entire gigantic position has just been basically brought down to one-year contracts. Right? Right. Not, kicker, not kickers. Kickers are still getting five-year contracts. You're not going to see a running back with a, with a three-year contract soon. Maybe, maybe in three years. Once McCaffrey gets out of his contract, I'm not even sure we're going to have a three-year contract for a running back. Owners did that. Nobody else did that. Owners did. Owners are saying, no, we're, we're not doing that anymore. That's all that's happening. They have so much freaking power in this league, right? And, and that's the other thing. And I think that's another reason NBA owners are trying to get the heck in and out. When is my guy, right? The guy who's we're making millions off of jersey sales for, I'm just waiting for the knock at the door. Get me out of here. I need to be traded. Because it's common with every franchise. Yeah, you every are right. franchise. Yeah, the, the, the NFL has small nuggets of that, right? You know, Antonio Brown tried and he was not the right guy to be the first man through that door. But we don't, we aren't seeing that in the NFL. The NFL is still an owner's league, top to bottom. And I'm not sure the NBA it can be viewed that way anymore. Yeah, yeah, you're right. With the player empowerment in the NBA really does uh, yeah. skew things a bit more with, with the NFL, especially when you're talking about, you know, those high salaries. I mean, you're talking about paying the guy 70 million and he might want to be gone tomorrow. <laughs> right. And, and if you're the Golden State Warriors and you do things the right way and you've drafted and you've retained them and you've kept paying them right. and you're getting dinged, that's a conversation that gets, keeps coming up as well. Getting is dinged harder, right? The, the they get CBA even, basically said, stop doing that. I, I agree with you on that too. 
So the conversation with that is more and more I'm hearing of how can we structure this so that if you keep your players, you you may get a discount. And it's it, it, it was going in leading into the CBA. We've had that conversation, too, and they didn't touch it. They just made the luxury tax worse for you know, Golden State. Phoenix is different because you know they only have two retained uh, that they've drafted. But you're right. The NFL they really don't have that uh, that persona to them. Yes, there are the the Aaron Rodgers or the Tom Brady's or you know the, the larger than life kind of personalities in the league. But there's more of those in the NBA than in the NFL. And you're right. The owners the owners can play extreme hardball with players mm-hmm. like they are with the running back conversation right now. You don't see that in the NBA where we're not going to pay centers. They're still paying them. Mm-hmm. If they're really good, they're still going to play pay a player. The NFL pays players for what they think they can be, a la the rookie scale extensions. Mm-hmm. They're going to pay five or six designated players for the next five years the maximum amount that they can, even though they haven't really – "Quote unquote," shown what they have yet, they, and, they and that's just an unwritten run. rule. You know what I and mean? That's like an unwritten that, rule. Completely. That, that is something everybody has just agreed to go along with because it, it keeps the train moving quickly, right? I mean, let's just throw the maximum amount of money out there, not have to deal with the public relations and the negotiations. But nothing says that has to happen. You know what I mean? The the other conversation that the NBA now has that the NFL does not completely have is almost everything salary wise is based on the cap per cap rising. Mm-hmm. So your mid-level exceptions, your maximum salaries, your minimum salaries, all of those things are based off of a percentage of a jump. So if the cap jumps the 10% that they may think it may go, all of those salaries subsequently go up by 10% in the following years. The NFL doesn't have that. Yeah. So if the cap rises $20 million, all of the salaries, the only thing that is really changed is the rookie scale. But any veterans that sign, there there is no percentage of increase for those salaries. So the, the owners and front office, for the most part, they can say, we want to stay at this percentage and this is where we're going to go as far as we're going to pay wide receivers or you know our defensive players, whereas in the NBA – if you're signing for what's called the mid-level, you're at that 12 million. And if it goes up 10% of that, then you're at that next value. So those salaries are going to always continue to increase. Whereas the NFL, it does not necessarily have to increase. It's a really great point um, because we're about to see some significant salary cap jumps in the NFL. And, you know, the conversation is going to be, Oh, look at how much more, room NFL teams have to pay players now, right? Except for I can open up the CBA, right? I can open up the PDF version of the CBA right now for the NFL and I can go to 2030. And I can tell you right now that a seven-year vet in 2030 will make a minimum of $1.48 million. And that is not changing without some sort of amendment to the, to the CBA, without a bunch of the NFL PA, you know, players of power getting together and saying, this is ridiculous. Because guess what the, guess what the salary cap is going to be by 2030? Let's just let's just throw a guesstimate out there. If it's 228 right now, we think it's going to at least 240, maybe 250 next year. What's it going to be in 2030? 325? Yeah. That's not even that's a half of 1%. That's 0.5% of the salary cap for a yeah. seven a seven plus year vet. 
I think they ain't going to cut it. And then the NBA would never allow that, you know, and that's what yeah. stinks. And for a comparison, my spreadsheet I have only goes out to 28, 29, but a seven year vet would make $4.3 million as a minimum. 10 plus would be five over $5 million. And that's yeah. with the projections I have right now. So, you know, we're talking significant increase compared to the NFL because of going off of the percent of increase. Yeah. And the NFL is healthier, I think from a top to bottom one to 32. That's the point of this whole conversation. This whole segment is that everybody's doing really well right now, financially speaking, but, and it goes back to the question. There's really no slaps on the wrist for these teams. You know, yes, they have to spend, you know, 89% of the salary cap over a couple of years and there's a floor and things like that. So there, it's not like there's, you know, rampant tanking happening in this league. That's kind of gone because of the expanded postseason. But that that middle class is gone. That middle class is gone because there's really no no rules. There's nobody there's no nobody policing the fact that you can pay Justin Herbert fifty five million dollars and you can pay a running back 0.75. And that's just life. Yeah. The the other point that I'll make is Fans, yes, there are the, the individual players that fans want to follow, but it's more of a I'm this fan team. of this team. Whereas yeah. in the NBA, it's a I'm going to follow Kevin Durant wherever he goes, or I'm going to follow LeBron wherever he goes, regardless of what team. So, and yeah. yes, there are fans that are strictly for those teams, but if Josh Allen was traded from the Bills to a another team most likely you're still going to be a buffalo bills fan That's through right. and through regardless of where josh allen goes yeah it's a big difference between this sport and a lot of the other sports right now because of uh, of the power of free agency and player empowerment and all that um and we'll go back to dallas with it and finish here when Dak prescott's knocked the quarterback because it's going to be ha- it's going to happen over the next couple of years here right it's not going to matter one iota to this revenue not at stream. all it's not going to matter one iota to their valuation It'll be a next man up scenario on the field. And Jerry Jones will simply use it as a way to, to remarket and rebrand somehow, right? The new face of the, of the Dallas Cowboys, because the only thing that matters more than the, than the face of that franchise is him and the star logo and that gigantic stadium with the gigantic scoreboard, right? That, that's what matters. That, that's how he makes his money is by essentially spinning the conversation to here we are. We're not going anywhere. It doesn't matter who's playing. We're not going anywhere. So I, I do think that the one through 32 health of this league has to do with, with the fact that it's an owner's league. And that's, that's a final statement for me. This is still very, very much an owner's league. They are in it to make money long-term. Okay. This is a marathon conversation from a financial perspective. And I don't think anybody really wants to get out, you know, unless they're being forced out right now, who the heck wants to leave an NFL team? Look how hard it, you know, it, it took to get Daniel Snyder out, mm-hmm. even though he was taking bullets from everywhere, right? Left, right, up, down. He didn't want to give this up because just staying one more year makes your 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 team worth 25 to 30%. One more year. That's what we've proved here with Sportico's numbers. So it, it's an unbelievable, uh, you know, breakdown. It's an unbelievable increase over just a three or four year plan. Do you expect the Dallas Cowboys to be a $10 billion team next year? They're going to be close. And I think, it, depending, I think it, they get there. I, 
I'll say yes if I have to give a yes or no. I'll say yes, they get there due to more of the gambling and yeah, the right. media and the in, in the streaming because we still don't know. You know, Amazon comes in now; they get more on Thursdays, and they're adding on Thanksgiving and or Christmas, and they're adding games all over the place. So I'm going to say they get there. It's pretty great, Scott. I mean, this is um, this is about as good as we can get here. One last question. I'll get you out here on this based on the numbers you put together. Which team took the biggest jump forward in terms of like rankings in the league? Who was the bigger, the bigger jump from, from 22 to 23, the Vegas Raiders jumped five spots. Okay. All right. So that's the team to watch right now. And, and by the way, and that then ties in nicely to your point, which is I think gambling is going to have a hell of a lot to do with this. And they're certainly the epicenter of that right now. Yeah, the other two teams that jumped the most were the Miami Dolphins and the Atlanta Falcons. Not sure why okay. the Falcons jumped as much, but they did. Okay. I mean, team on the rise. Not sure they have the quarterback, but team on the rise. Um, Giants going from four to two is a pretty big deal as well, by the way, because that that's a middling team. Um, that New York market has been up and down a little bit of, of late, especially from a football standpoint. I, I have to think that... Um, well, well, we'll have to see. We, we've seen My, some. We've seen some big jumps based on actual football results, right? When this, for instance, New England, right? When this, when the Super Bowl sustainably get to the playoffs and, and late in the postseason, have a franchise player like Brady who who's reliably marketable and spot, you know, gaining sponsorships left and right. And New England goes from basically a twenty-something team to a top-five team for fifteen years. So we, it, it does work that way. You know, there's a world where, uh, you know. If Miami and Tua figure it out, they jump into the top 10 next year and the top five in two years. So it's not just about, you know, luxury suites and, and sponsorships and all that. So I, I, I guess there's there's that to watch on the field, which which team on the field can actually pump themselves into a top 10 value team by 2024. Yeah, th that's a great point. Um I mean, if, I if the Eagles, if the Eagles continue to win, th that's a team I like that, that one. Off the field, maybe even on the field, the, the team that and it's local, the, the Washington Commanders, keep an mm. eye on them growing over the next year or two because, you know, just looking at the training camp pictures going from like two or yeah. three people to flooded. But there's also the conversation of back and forth with a new stadium for them. So yeah. if they get a new stadium in, we may see them back up in the top five of these valuations because of all of that's going on. If they're going to rebrand, that's something that they've been talking about, whether they keep the commander's name or they rebrand again. So there's there's a lot of things with the, the commanders that could project them up. But with the on-field, if they continue to do what they're doing, I really like the Eagles. All right. Three predictions. Let's, let's say it this way. Ready? I'm going to say... The Buffalo Bills get out of the out of the 30s next year, okay, into a low 20, which would be a big, big deal for that small market. I agree with your Washington point. I think they jump up not quite to the top five yet next year. Um, I think New England falls out of the top five next year. I think Philly gets into the top 10, and I think Dallas eclipses the $10 million mark. I think those are my uh, bold predictions for 2024 valuations. Outside of that, um, you know, there's a lot of work to be done here. Did anybody surprisingly step back before we go, Scott? You know? 
Denver Broncos dropped four spots. If you want to talk about spots dropped in, in the Tampa Bay Buccaneers dropped four, that could have been the Tom Brady effect uh, in that aspect. Um, Denver's really interesting because that was a pile of garbage last year on the field and from a front office standpoint, and there's a lot of turnover, mm-hmm. but that's a recently sold team. You and know, then, it, was, it was definitely making improvements on the stadium and all sorts of things. You would think that that they'd have an influx of interest and, and culture, but man, that Russell Wilson season really torpedoed things, right? Nate Hackett broke Denver. Yeah, they only they were the lowest growing team too. Yeah. They were only four point seven percent. So not only did they drop four spots, they only grew four percent as opposed to uh, a, a twenty four and a half percent average yeah. across the whole league. So they that was not a good season on multi multiple levels for the Denver Broncos. I'm going to have you give one prediction because it's coming in the next couple of weeks. Who's going to be the biggest jumping team in the NBA valuations? Ooh, caught me off guard on that one. It's all right. Um, what do you think? I got a couple of names that I think might jump up here. Yeah, I do have a couple names. Um, more so in the West, I guess I'm going to go with that. probably with the championship. The Denver Nuggets are going to jump quite a bit. You think um, so? Immediate impact, huh? Okay. Yeah, I do. Uh, Sacramento Kings. I bet you they have a decent yeah. jump. That was one of my teams for sure. Um, a, a rising team because they're doing things interestingly. The, the Oklahoma City Thunder is going to be interesting to keep an eye on. Man, I just don't know if they have the revenue. I, I, I don't know I if they have the know. revenue, but it, it, it's going to be interesting to see. I'll give you my I two teams. To, uh, the other team that I'll say, let me say one more team. Oh, maybe the, you got me here. The other team, it depends on because of the, the, the with the trade deadline, how much they gr- had brought in in mm. the second half of the season. Phoenix Suns, okay. especially with the with, with the sale, we'll, we'll have to see where they end up. We got we got to be careful with with a team like that though because the TV stuff is really messy, right? They ended up it, having it to very, basically buy their own TV and, cables, and cable output for a bunch of the that, season and stuff. That that's a fantastic point. I wonder how much those valuations uh, across the league are going to get dinged from that standpoint when they come out because right. with with all those RSNs, it, it, it's going to hurt what half half the league at least. So. It's going to be interesting to see if the teams can still grow or if that's going to take a huge chunk out of their Okay, here's my two teams real quick. We'll, we'll certainly have talk about this plenty more when it hits. Sacramento was one as the kind of the small team riser. My second small team riser is, is going to be valued for where they're headed, and that's Orlando. Mm-hmm. I, I think Orlando, I, yep. I think people know Orlando is coming. Uh, they're kind of one big free agency or, or or veteran trade away from maybe putting this thing together quickly, like, you know, quicker than I think people anticipate. And if I'm evaluating that franchise where it is and all sorts, you know, tax free and all that, I, I'm I'm buying Orlando right now if I if I had the ability to totally so. agree. So so I think that team is coming. All right. We'll get there when we have to. Good stuff today. All right. Thanks a lot.